This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. One of the best works of art about World War I isn't Johnny Got His Gun or 1917, but the Swedish heavy metal band Sabaton's album, The Great War. Here's lead singer Joachim Broder. From a more general point of view, I feel like our music, from the emotional spectrum, I guess, that's in our music, it's pretty emotionally close to what you'd find on the battlefield or in history. There is obviously the aggression, sometimes a sense of joy and pride, sometimes depression, and all these things. You can listen to our full interview on the History Employed podcast, and you can find it on the podcast layer of your choice. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. In 1897, the United States was in the middle of one of its worst depressions that it had ever endured, almost as bad as the 1830s depression that pushed a lot of people out west. When newspapers announced that incredible amounts of gold was found in the Klondike region of the Yukon, there was a mob of poor Americans that swarmed north. Within weeks, some of them were going towards some of the coldest, harshest, worst places on the planet, and right in the middle of winter, completely unprepared and with no experience in mining or mountaineering. And this proved deadly. There were avalanches, shipwrecks, starvation, and even murder. Today's guest is Brian Kastner. He's the author of Stampede, Gold Fever and Disaster in the Klondike. We discuss a number of the people who joined the gold rush, including Jack London, who made his fortune, but not in gold, Colonel Samuel Steele, who tried to save the Stampeders from themselves, the notorious gangster Soapy Smith, a number of so-called good-time girls, the hotel entrepreneur Belinda Mulrooney, and a number of others. So we look at the incredible lengths that people go to to get rich, but also what the story tells us about today when there are stampedes for what many people think is a get-rich-quick scheme, whether cryptocurrency or something else, and what are the lessons we have for today. So I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Brian Kastner. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, this is a large story. This is a particular episode in American history about a gold rush, not the California gold rush, but the Klondike gold rush. But it's also a universal story of pandemonium and get-rich-quick schemes and things that we see in the 21st century. And before we get into the details of the story, when you were researching this and looking at the pandemonium that took hold of the Klondike gold rush and people doing ridiculous things, making reckless decisions, was there any particular story that stuck out to you as 
really showing an example of how reckless people were being with this? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, the level of recklessness generally was was almost insane. The ships that were pulled out of mothball status in Seattle and they were rusty and leaking and they packed them, you know, to the top anyway and sent them out and, you know, the ships are sinking and and people are going to Alaska in winter time and being stuck in the passes. It was almost like the the mob mentality and just the general delirium was incredible. But I, I think like a microcosm of that was the town of Skagway, which was one of the ports on the Alaskan coast. And it was really taken over by the mobster, Soapy Smith. And he set up like this, you know, a bunco within a bunco, so to speak, a, a scam within a scam where he was, he had uh, people around setting up fake real estate offices that would fell, sell, you know, fake deeds and fake saloons and fake card games and, and fake shell games. And I think the best example of that was the fake telegraph office where you could wire money home, but the telegraph didn't run to Skagway and his wire just went directly into the ground. And so he would both charge you for sending a message, but then also collect your money and say that he was sending it to someone else. Like it was the level of deception that people were caught in was really incredible. Okay, well, that makes me feel a lot better about any kind of tour scams that I've ever been caught in abroad, where at worst I lose five or ten dollars. So uh, it could be a lot worse. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it was and that's, you know, he saw an opportunity. Soapy Smith is just one of the characters in this book, but he saw an opportunity. You know, some people were trying to get rich by mining, but there were a lot of people that were trying to mine the miners. And so you had multiple levels, like I say, of greed here and deception and pandemonium. Well, let's start off with what's happening in the United States in the 1890s. And presumably, the, there have to be certain conditions that exist for this type of pandemonium to break out. So what happens at this time close to the beginning of the 20th century? Yeah, that's a good question. So really, I think the defining preview to the gold rush is the panic of 1893, which is a depression that we don't really normally think or, or think of or study now. Uh, but it was the worst depression that the U.S. had endured at that time. And what caused it will sound familiar to people that have been through the Great Recession. There was Wall Street had completely over leveraged its investments. This time it wasn't mortgages or the dot-com bust, but it was railroads. And they were totally over leveraged. And then as investment firms and banks started to fail, then a property prices fell, people's mortgages were underwater, they lost their homes, unemployment started to skyrocket. It, this will sound very familiar to people of what happened in 1893. And just the recession and the depression just wouldn't shake. And so it, it lasted for years. And, you know, at the same time, there was an additional level of, you know, economic policy that made this worse. And that was the division of gold or of dollars between gold and silver. So there were gold backed dollars and silver backed dollars. And as a very practical matter, they, you know, a dollar backed by silver was just worth less than a dollar backed by gold. So as you can imagine, the rich would collect all the gold dollars for themselves and the poor were left with, with silver dollars. And this is why we have William Jennings Bryan and, and others talking about you know, the gold standard and his famous speech about crucifying the country on a cross of gold. And this was like a major presidential campaign issue in 1896. 
So in the middle of this depression, and when gold is a major issue, and there are strikes on the street, and people are losing their jobs, and police are killing young men on the street, and the country feels to be imploding, at the same time, you have all these headlines about this economic trouble, suddenly you get headlines that gold has been discovered in the Klondike, that people didn't know where the Klondike was, or understood what was involved to get there didn't really matter. The newspaper stories made it sound like gold was just lying around like Easter eggs waiting to be picked up. And it seemed like the solution to everyone's problems. And when the stampede got going, it was over 100,000 people that ended up leaving very quickly. And for perspective, that's like the combined population of Seattle and Los Angeles at the time. What was the Klondike like at this period? I'm curious what people are swarming to. I'm sure it's absolutely overwhelmed, but to set the stage, What's the population there? What sort of infrastructure exists that people are swarming to? Very little. Um, There is uh, obviously the indigenous people, the Clinket and the Tagish, what are now known as the Carcross Tagish people, had been living there for a long time. But the Russians never really moved in from the coast when they owned Alaska. The line, I should say quickly, as people will probably think, but wait a second, isn't the Klondike in Canada? And that's true. But the border was surveyed, but not really followed necessarily. And Canada claimed land all the way to the coast. And Alaska claimed land inland to Canada. The border was very porous. And it wasn't until the U.S. bought Alaska that prospectors started moving in, not really paying attention to the border and going up and down the Yukon River. But there were never, say, more than a thousand white men prospectors, very few white women that were in the Yukon River Valley. And you had tiny little settlements of a couple hundred here and a couple hundred there, but mostly you know, individual prospectors who barely collected enough gold to you know, keep themselves in the country, keep themselves fed, enough money to buy whiskey, but not enough to get drunk until you had you know, this discovery in the Klondike River Valley and the associated creeks, El Dorado and Bonanza and these other creeks. So people were coming into an area that was had very little infrastructure, very little food, where starvation was already a problem. And yeah, there was not, you know, it was a hundred to one ratio of Chichacos, which was the name for newcomers, versus people that had been there before, which were the sourdoughs. Right. You can feel the dread right now of the Titanic getting closer and closer to the iceberg, because this is already a region with total scarcity. And it would be like today if Gold was found in Antarctica and people are rushing there. And okay, there's a few research stations, but they don't have nearly enough food or infrastructure. So, walk me through from when the gold discovery is announced. Could you highlight what happens? What's the process where people hear about it? They make the decision to sell their goods, they travel north, they arrive. Could you describe the announcement of the gold discovery and walk through the process of people getting there? Sure. So gold was actually discovered in August of 1896, but the only people who heard about it were the other prospectors in the immediate area. So there was a local stampede to the Klondike River Valley, but they people put in claims. They tried to, uh, the way you dig and mine up there is you dig in the winter by burning. You set fires and burn through the permafrost to try to get down to the bedrock and find the pay streak. They would, you know, they worked all winter and then in the spring you do spring cleanup. And there were a couple people like Clarence and Ethelberry, a couple, married couple up there that I write about that worked all winter, you know, collected up about $100,000 worth of gold, which is an insane amount of money at the time. It's about a 30 to one ratio 
of, you know, after inflation, when you compare prices then and prices now. But they didn't get out, you know, word didn't get out until almost a year later. So people like Clarence and Ethel Berry stepped off the dock in San Francisco and Seattle in July of 1897. And it went across the wires, it went across the newspapers in days. And within days, you had people getting on trains in New York City and Boston, crossing the country and looking for boats. And it was less than a week later that you know ships were sailing north. So they're sailing north in July, August, September to Alaska. Some people have food, some people don't. They're not really sure where they're going. Some people bring horses to get across the mountain pass. And they, you know, they get there on the Alaskan coast and they kind of know where to go. And so the the traditional stampede route was you get off the boat in Skagway or Dyee, two towns near each other. You take the Chilkoot Pass or the White Pass, which both go up over the ridge, the first, you know, the first line of mountains. And then you kind of work your way down from lake to lake in the headwaters of the Yukon until you make it to Lake Lindemann. You build yourself a boat, you put your outfit, your gear on it, and then you paddle the rest of the way to Dawson City, which was, you know, which was the headquarters of the gold rush and was just being built as people were arriving. A very few people made it before the Yukon froze in October of 1897. But really what happened is tens of thousands of people were stuck along the way at various points, stuck on the lake, stuck on the river stuck in Skagway. And all this time, just more and more people show up, December, January, February. It's it's like a real bottleneck that happens. And this is where a lot of the deaths occurred, is people stuck in the winter waiting for things to unfreeze and thaw. Was there any common profile or characteristics of the people who went, or did the people who come come from all walks of life? Yeah, that's a good question. So the stampede was overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly white. There were some, you know, obviously there's indigenous people already living there. There were very few black people and some Japanese immigrants, but it really was mostly white men. There was a sense of reclaiming lost glory and nostalgia. There were a number of Civil War generals that went. There were a number of ex-senators that went people that were trying to regain fame by taking this last great adventure. Some people would say this is the last West. It's like the last frontier, the last chance to have a boom town the way you would have had Deadwood or Creed or, or someplace like that in the American West. But the overwhelming majority was not the richest and not the poorest. You had to be middle class. You had to have just enough money, $1,000, say, to put together an outfit to be able to buy the gear and the food and transportation and everything else. One newspaper reported at the time that it appeared to be mostly police officers and streetcar drivers that were the primary recipient of what they called clondicitis, Klondike fever, that it was like um, it was disease of the mind that people got where they just became obsessed with it, found the money and headed north. What did people think would happen? They're hearing these stories. Do so they imagine, okay, I'm going to buy my kit. I'm going to go up there and, okay, it'll be a little colder than I'm used to. So buy an extra coat. But eventually I'll go there, spend a month. I'll, my pickaxe will hit the ground. So there'll be a solid block of gold that weighs 20 pounds and I'm wealthy the rest of my life. I mean, what did they think when they were going to go north? 
Yes, that's basically right because that's what they write in the newspapers. Hmm. That um, that the initial that the initial miners who came back and reported from San Francisco said, well, if you work hard and you know you have a little bit of luck, then you will be able to set yourself up for life. And there was just talk about just the incredible amount of money that was able to be made up there. I mean, you had other people saying Joe Ledoux, who was the surveyor who initially laid out Dawson City, he came back and he was just flabbergasted and shocked and tried to tell every newspaper reporter that would listen, if you go up there, you will die. I mean, you you are unprepared for what you're going into. And, you know, that kind of measured tone like appeared on page six or seven, not on the front page. I mean, not to give away the ending of the book, but I think it probably goes without saying that there was not enough space for 100,000 people to claim land, right? There were already prospectors up there. By the time the news got out, not only had all the best claims been taken, uh, but many of them had already been worked. And so uh, I think it's, uh, again, probably unsurprising that the Panic of 1893, the vast inequities and in wealth, um, the very rich and the very poor, the fact that you had Vanderbilts in, you know, and then very people making 10 cents an hour in the factory, that wealth inequality that people thought they could fix by going to the Klondike was just recreated up in the Klondike because a very few people got very, very rich and many more just showed up and then discovered there was no room for them. And that's interesting you mentioned that some people are saying the disaster could happen because by this point in the 1890s, we have cases of pioneers who go out who aren't properly prepared, who go too late in the season, like the Donner Party, which was legendary by that point. And then with the 49ers, okay, many of them don't starve to death, but the story that at least we know today is that some people got fabulously rich, but most people just went up there. The pickings were already taken. Do you have any sense of, um, even though we have these stories by this point, but did people not know of these stories or did they just choose to ignore them for the hope of what could happen to them? I, yeah, I think there's a certain American optimism in just that this time will be different or that this time that there's, you know, there's a chance for me now. Maybe that didn't work out for somebody else. But, you know, if if I just work hard and, you know, the, something that was being fought at the time, this was the very infancy of labor unions. There was a lot massive exploitation of labor in factories. Some of the people that went up, like Clarence Berry, who I mentioned, but many more, they said, well, if I make 10, I could make 10 cents an hour in a pickle factory. Uh, Jack London was one of these pay people. He, you know, he worked in a factory that made thread and put thread on bobbins and, and did and shoveled coal and all of these things. Like why work for someone else for 10 cents an hour? I can go and be my own person. And I mean, there is a fundamental optimism there that I think we recognize in American history. It wasn't really interested in facts or just, you know, basic logical reasoning. Well, let's talk about in general what happens up there. And then we'll get into some of these character studies that you highlight in your book. The masses arrive, tens of thousands of people, the river freezes, they can't actually reach the Klondike River region of the Yukon. What's happening? Uh, what's going on as winter sets in? Right. So the, you know, like I said, gold was actually discovered in 1896. And Dawson went, Dawson City went from a place of zero, essentially, to a couple thousand. And they somehow got through that first winter of 1896. But then as people, more people from around Alaska and the first, the very first Stampeders get in, 
Dawson has grown beyond the amount of food that it has. And the Yukon River level goes down. They have trouble getting barges in. And the really the first challenge at Dawson is that that first winter of 1897, 1898, that you know, they start, uh, instead of everybody having their own food, everybody has to put it in the same warehouse. They put armed guards. They have to dole it out one by one. And it's really only because some of the indigenous people in the area hunt moose and share it with the couple thousand living there in Dawson, uh, that the people of Dawson City get through okay. At the same time, these stories of famine are leaking out. So it's not like people in the outside the stampede in the greater stampede that they don't realize what's happening, but it doesn't stop them from going anyway. So you have some people just kind of stuck on the frozen side of the Yukon River. You have many more tens of thousands of people stuck on Lake Lindemann, where they are building boats, not that they know how to build boats. You know, these are people accustomed to streetcars and the beginnings of electricity and most of them, they don't know how to ride horses or hitch horses. They ride in carriages. You know, they have somebody else do that. They're, a lot of them are urban city people. So the horses that they do have are dying because they're treating them wrong. They don't know how to build boats. They build boats that end up sinking. And a lot of people end up drowning once they eventually launch. And then you have people getting stuck in Skagway and Dai as the ships keep dropping off more and more. And then they're at the whims of people like Soapy Smith that I mentioned, like losing what little money and food they already have in these scams before they've ever made it to Dawson and tried to file a claim. And so you have this horde, this mass that's really just waiting for the river to break. And then in May of 1898, it does. And Dawson City goes from a couple thousand to as many as 40 or 50,000 it's hard to get real, you know, good numbers, but up to 50,000 people, say by the fall of 1898. And people just wander around in the streets like they got there. And they're like, well, well, now we're here. What do we do? A lot of them sold their food and went home, like didn't even try to stake a claim and do any mining. It was like, um, it was like an adventure that they were happy they had and happy they survived. And, uh, and, and now it was time to find a steamer and somehow get out. Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. Those few months there must have been absolutely bizarre. Was it like Barter City at Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome? Just overpopulated, totally lawless, where basically a warlord would take power. I mean, what what was it like then with so many people and so little resources or law enforcement to keep order? Yes, I mean there was very little law enforcement and Colonel Sam Samuel Steele, who was the commander of the Northwest Mounted Police in the area, he arrived in February of 1898. And it's worth saying that at the time the Northwest Mounted Police were not like smiling mounties in red coats as we think about them now. This was really like a uh, a light like cavalry unit and it was much more militarized. And so what Samuel Steele did was put Maxim machine guns on the border. He essentially, the border ended up being wherever Colonel Steele said it was. And he put posts up on the border at the Chilkoot and the White Pass. And the idea was to keep the worst of the gangsters in Skagway out of Canada. And then his goal was to save the mob from itself, essentially, to keep as many from drowning and killing each other as possible. 
So he, he's also the one that instituted the rule that you had to bring a year's worth of food. Sometimes it's called a thousand pounds or two thousand or a ton of goods. Uh, you hear different numbers. But yes, it was people were stuck running out of food and money. And this is where you hear, I mean, some people just left, of course, like, you know, realized they weren't getting any further. You know, in the end, I think if you look at that 100,000 that went, something like 50 or 60% of them uh, were, were drowned, shot, froze to death, starved, or simply turned around and left. Well, there are famous characters that come from this. You mentioned Jack London. Uh, you say that he makes his fortune, but not in gold. How does he make his fortune? Right. I mean, through stories, obviously. So it's important to say that when Jack London went on this trip, he was nobody. He, uh, he was a tramp. He had various jobs around in San Francisco. He had ridden the rails with other tramps. He had been arrested in Niagara Falls for vagrancy and was jailed for some time. He had been an oyster pirate. He had been an able-bodied seaman on a ship to Japan. But he hadn't really, I mean, he was not the person that we think of now. He was a very young man. And so he was a stampeder like anyone else, but he was very competitive. He went with his brother-in-law who quit after only a few days. But Jack London does, he doesn't make it to Dawson either, really. He wandered into Dawson over the winter, but really he spent his winter on the Stewart River, which is still upriver of Dawson. And, and what he does is he, he talks to people. He's already a socialist. He's already reading Milton and, and all these classics. He talks their ear off, but he, but he spends a lot of that winter alone because everybody's sick of him. And he's sitting in a cabin and he doesn't do much mining. I think in the end, he ends up mining a total or panning out a total of about $5 worth of gold. And he gets scurvy and becomes extremely sick. But what, what he does is he has all these experiences that will turn into White Fang and Call of the Wild and, and all of these other stories. So He's one of the stampeders. In some ways, he's very indicative. He's young. He's clueless. He's trying to work hard, but he's, you know, but totally fails as a miner. The only difference is he goes back home. And in the next couple of years, I mean, wrote, writes just an astounding number of books and stories and becomes extremely rich and famous from this. Not bad from homeless man to one of the great American authors. Uh, it's also interesting, too, that in the 19th century, these are the people who become great writers, not like today, where you have an MFA and go to the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. So I guess that's something that's changed in American history. Yeah, don't get me started on MFAs. But, that, <laughs> but there is something to that. It was, I mean, it was definitely his lived experience and his own smarts and his own reading of the classics and combine those things. And, you know, famous stories like To Build a Fire, you know, that's, that's an experience that he had being stuck alone in the cold out on the Stewart River. Well, there are others, too, who make the most of the situation, and some do quite well. You mentioned the hotel entrepreneur, Belinda Mulrooney. So what's the story there? Yeah, she's fascinating. I mean, she becomes the richest woman in Dawson, and she is an Irish immigrant who comes to the United States as, as a girl and uh, eventually kind of works her way west and, and is in Alaska before the rush. So she's one of those people that can get there early. And she starts by opening up. She realizes quickly that miners don't have time to cook for themselves and mine. And so she opens a lunch counter and a lunch counter 
turns into a uh, a place to sleep and she realizes that if as long as she doesn't give them mattresses that are full of fleas and you know rotten food that everybody's happy and she really she's one of those people that gets rich mining the miners and she ends up building the you know the most beautiful most exotic hotel in Dawson which has glass in the windows and mirrors and real wallpaper and she's serving oysters and it, it's really incredible how once the once the stampede arrives and those you know those lines of communication are open that you know one day you couldn't buy a bag of flour on the street of Dawson and then a week later you can get ice cream and eggs and all these things that are coming in and she took advantage of that and she rode the wave she she was one of the very few women you say you know not that got rich not working as a sex worker, not working in, you know, as a dancer or as, you know, one of the percentage girls as they, as they called them because they got a percentage of every dance that they did in these saloons. You know, Belinda Mulrooney was an entrepreneur and extremely successful. She's a fascinating character. Any other people who really stick out to you from the story that you think kind of like tell the story of the, of the Klondike and what people did well and what people failed here? Yeah, I think another, the person that actually I was most intrigued with was Anna DeGraff. Maybe it's because I'm a father and she is she's a little older when she goes on the stampede. She's in her 50s. And Anna DeGraff becomes mother to all of the girls of Dawson. She's I mean, DeGraff herself is really fascinating. She's not going on the stampede to look for gold. She's going to look for her son. Her son disappears when he heads up to Alaska. And she spent several years going from mining camp to mining camp, Circle City, 40 Mile, all these little camps. She hears rumors of him, and she tries to follow these rumors around. But when she's up there, she ends up finding work as a seamstress or uh, finding work in other fields. And so in Dawson City, she makes all of the dresses for the dancers and for the good time girls, and it really tries to become mother to them. And so I think through her character... You know, I tried to tell the story of not just the miners, but other people that were that were caught up in this rush. And I mean, to be quite honest, the stories of of abuse and suicide and depression and just the I, I think that there's, you know, there's if there's a popular image, it's of these shiny uh, smiling girls doing the can can or something in these burlesque shows. But just the, you know, the abuse that they took that really was, you know, sitting there in stories, just kind of waiting to be told. I'm, it, it really struck me that when I read a lot of the histories of the gold rush, the women and the indigenous people are often, if they're there at all, they're scenery. And it's not like I had to dig really in lots of archives to, to find stories of the crime and violence that happened up there. They, they were just kind of waiting there for somebody to notice. Absolutely. I mean, you're, one of the most vulnerable people in a very violent situation when there's not much protection. So you really have to have your wits about you uh, just to be able to survive there. So as this goes on, I mean, without giving away the end of, of your book, I'm wondering, this gold rush, does it have a long-term impact on the region? Because the California gold rush, it accelerates the population movement of the United States to the West, probably accelerated maybe by decades, what would have been a natural organic push to the West. Or in the Soviet Union, when Joseph Stalin was setting up these large cities close to iron ore deposits, you have cities of 100,000 people that are practically up in the Arctic Circle that Canada has nothing like that because it let 
evolution and population spread take its course. So it's much lighter farther north, but there's legacies in Russia, these sort of planned economies. Is there any sort of legacy you could see of what happens up there in Alaska with the gold rush? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I I, I would agree with your analysis. My The more I learned about the California rush of 49, the more it seemed like everybody wanted to go to California and the gold was just a good excuse. But once they got there, they were happy to ranch or farm or shipping industry and homestead and all of these other things. But nobody went to Alaska to homestead, right? They were there for a very specific reason. And it's like the circus showed up and then it left. And Dawson, I mean, 10, 20 years later, goes from 50,000 people to 2,000 people. It just absolutely shrinks. And and so like the I think the long-term impact is is that Alaska kind of retains this frontier character where when people left Dawson, they left to Nome to follow the gold. And then they they went to other places looking for gold. And it was, I, I don't know, like the, the Alaska being the the last frontier is something that kind of sticks in American minds still, you know, Jan, uh, Krakauer and Into the Wild and, and all of these kind of things, right? So I think it, it built the Alaskan myth more than it deposited people in settlements. People are still mining gold in the Klondike. People are still mining gold in Eagle and Circle City and Fairbanks and, and places like that up there. There's still reality TV shows about this, but it's you know, it's really about that myth that endures rather than the practical impact of, of people. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Calitrin is a weight loss supplement made from collagen protein and digestive enzymes. Calitrin is designed to assist the body in repairing and rebuilding lean muscle using top quality ingredients. The reason it contains collagen, which is the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the body, is because it decreases as we age. Because Calitrin rebuilds this critical protein, it promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. I tried it for a month, slept great, felt more energetic, and noticeably shed weight that was gained over the holidays. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. Here are some customer testimonials. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calitrin. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. And Diane not only lost weight, but found relief from arthritis. This week, you can take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is extremely easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605, and you'll get a link to this special offer. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605. The history of the Popes of Rome and Christianity reaches into nearly every aspect of history. In the History of the Papacy podcast, we step over the rope. We dive in to discover more about the people, events, and background that define the influence of the Popes of Rome and Church, not only on the West, but the world. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search for History of the Papacy on your favorite podcast platform. Yeah, my wife and I are fans of the show The Last Alaskans about people that live on the Anwar, the Arctic Wildlife Reserve. So if it only gave us that, that's pretty nice. But um, so here's what I'm curious about. Um, You said that part of the reason this happens, that there's a stampede, even though there's examples in American history of how stampedes like this can be unprofitable or even dangerous. A lot of that is overridden by the American optimism that runs in a lot of people. So what I'm curious about is what's the line between 
that type of dreamer optimism risk taking that we see as part of the American story. That's a very good thing. And then recklessness, because we have the story of the pilgrims of immigrants in the 19th century who come to the United States seeking political freedom, religious freedom. We have Neil Diamond singing in the 1970s on the boats and on the planes. They're coming to America. So there's that type of spirit. But then there's the Donner Party. Then there's stories like this. There's what we at least perceive to be completely avoidable death and tragedy because people simply weren't taking into account what was going on. So how do you think like telling the story that we don't want to completely tamp down on spirit and adventurism because there is a lot of good that came of that. But what do you make of the story and sussing out the difference between those two? Yeah, that that's a good question. And I'm afraid I'm not going to give you a satisfying answer. <laughs> like because like as you say, these things these things are intention. I, I think what I try to do in my writing and what stories, or maybe I should say what stories really interest me is when I discover something that I can't believe really happened. And often that's because my impression of the thing or the popular image of the thing as you relate as you note, you know, becomes at odds with the reality that I discover. And so my goal in the book and the goal in my writing and other things too, is to just state as plainly as I can, both how good it was for Clarence and Ethel Berry, who took their money and invested it in, you know, took their Klondike money, invested it in oil and Berry Petroleum sold for $4.3 billion less than a decade ago. You know, so like there is that American dream that we've been talking about. And yet at the same time, just how much death there was, recklessness, destruction of the environment, impact on the indigenous people, you know, the lynchings that happened, the murders that happened, like all of these things. My goal is to just lay it out plainly and 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 maybe try to recast it. I think something that drew me to this story is that, yeah, it was a um, in popular imagination. It's this American ingenuity and expansion and, and et cetera, et cetera. It was also a disaster movie, but it was a real disaster movie for thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps, that died. We don't know how many people died overall. People died anonymously, like drowned in the river, uh, in the creeks, and there's not good crime data for how many people were killed. You know, So to try to really paint a complete picture and then... Whether any of it was worth it, as you say, I guess I'll leave that to the reader. But the first thing I'd want to do is say, well, here's what really happened, despite, you know, the impression you get from maybe reading a paragraph in a history book in eighth grade or something. And lastly, is there anything in 2021 that you think is similar to this and you hope if people get into the story, they can avoid a modern day gold rush? I don't know if it's the internet telling me that this one weird trick of eating cranberries gives me six-pack apps or cryptocurrency or trading penny stocks or anything that, as you were researching the story, you thought, wait, that reminds me a lot of this crooked thing my neighbor's trying to get me into or some advertisement I saw, anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I guess I would, I, I have two answers to that question. Um, and And one is that, you know, obviously Americans have been have fallen for conspiracy theories for a long time. And so the idea that gold was laying around like Easter eggs, well, that's not quite QAnon, but it is, <laughs> it, you know, we we are susceptible to these myths. And uh, after the Great Recession, uh, people did, without getting political, you know, but like people voted for what they thought might be a solution and conspiracy theories grew from that, you know? So I think when people are desperate 
they're willing to indulge in some of these things. The other part of that, so like that's maybe a more negative thing. I think from a positive side, there's something not just of the American spirit, uh, but of the human spirit of the risks people are willing to take to, you know, for a, a better life. And in, in this particular case, in 1897, uh, on very little information, they were willing to go to Alaska. Today, there's people in sub-Saharan Africa that are crossing the Sahara and getting on boats in the Mediterranean to try to get to Europe. I'm not sure that they have a very good sense of what's waiting for them in Italy and what exactly they want, but there's this idea that something's better there. People are traveling from Latin America north to try to do the same thing in the United States. They're taking on incredible hardships and off ocean voyages and some things that look very similar for the chance at a better life. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. So that's more of a human spirit thing rather than being than focusing on Americans. But I don't know if, if there's a positive part aspect to it, that's what I'd go to. Okay, well, this is a really great story because, as you discussed, there's uh, particular things in history, but then there's also a universal story here, and there's a lot more characters we couldn't get into here. And for listeners who want to check that out, the name of the book is Stampede, Gold Fever, and Disaster in the Klondike. Ryan, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. This has been fun. All right, that is all for today's episode. As a first order of business, I need to thank the Knowlton's Rangers, and I'll explain what that is in a second. And they are Kristen Lee, Willie from New Jersey, Suma41, Sergeant Hooch, Wire Meets Wood Guitars at WMWGuitars.com, Bill Ivey, Tom from Ohio, Salvador Sanchez, Dane Carlson from Linwood, Washington, Rob from Chicago, Nick Brooks, Michael Piccinetti, Michael from New York, Jeff Mitchell, owner of Mountain West Commercial Las Vegas, Josh Reddick, Jake Harrington, Josh from BFW Post 2285, David Santi, Chris C., and Baron Fraser. Now, if you'd like to support History Unplugged and help it grow, there are three easy ways to do so. First, subscribe to the show and leave a review on the podcast player of your choice. This helps other people discover the show. Second, join our Facebook group, and here you can discuss recent episodes with fellow listeners, mention what you'd like to see on the show in the future, and get way more out of the show, and just look for History Unplugged on Facebook. Third, become a member of the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were an elite reconnaissance and espionage detachment of the Continental Army established by George Washington, but it's also the membership group of History Unplugged, and here you can really dive in way deeper at the show. You can check it out by going to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash unplugged. If you join at the scout level, you get early access to new podcast episodes, and you get completely ad-free versions of the entire back catalog of more than 500 episodes. Plus, everything is neatly categorized, so if you want to listen to something about the Middle Ages and skip all the Civil War stuff or vice versa, you can easily find an old episode from three years ago that, if you're just looking on Apple Podcasts, would be buried in the feed. If you join at the intelligence officer level, you get all the same stuff, but access to a growing catalog of now more than 60 premium episodes that come out bi-weekly including a multi-part series on the life of Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat soldier in World War II, a series on French Foreign Legion fighters in World War I, one on Teddy Roosevelt's years in the Dakota Badlands, and a series on Nazi attempts to assassinate FDR, Churchill, and Stalin in 1943. Lastly, if you join the Spymaster level, you get all the same stuff as level 1 and 2, but you also get a shout-out to you and or your business at the end of each episode. You can choose a historical topic on absolutely anything, and I'll base an hour-long episode on it, Plus, you get a three-pack of hardcover books. So again, check it all out by going to patreon.com slash unplugged. Well, that's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time. 